This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, we're going to continue with our Washington theme, uh, and this um, has to do with former White House Chief Strategist Steve Bannon, because he is sounding an an alarm, excuse me. But is the White House listening? Let's get to this story. It is in the magazine and online at businessweek.com. Josh Green is national correspondent at Bloomberg Businessweek on the phone from Washington. Josh, Josh has written a book called Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Nationalist Uprising. Uh, Josh, great story. Um, You spent some time with Steve Bannon. A lot of people are kind of doing sit-downs with Steve Bannon. uh, And you watch the Golden Globes with him. His warning to the White House has to do with the hashtag MeToo movement. That's right. I mean, you know, the Golden Globes award ceremony hosted by Oprah Winfrey was pretty clearly a pivotal moment in the culture where uh, not only Winfrey, but a lot of the black clad activists decided this is going to be uh, kind of a national platform to talk about these issues that have really risen up in the last six to eight months since the Harvey Weinstein scandal. You know, and Bannon, who has a pretty good sense of, of, of uh, the American political mood, having helped to get Trump elected, uh, told me that he thinks that this is an existential threat to Donald Trump and Trump's presidency, uh, because if this momentum continues and if Republicans don't change tack, then uh, Democrats could win back the House of Representatives in the fall, impeach Donald Trump, and that would that would be the end of the Trump movement that, that Bannon himself was so instrumental in building. And that's your point here. Whether you like Steve Bannon or not, as you say in your story, he's a shrewd analyst of American politics and of our collective national anxieties. Having said that, with Bannon saying, you know, the White House should watch this movement, there's so much coming out. We have so many headlines crossing uh, once again here on a Friday involving Robert Mueller's investigation, Mr. Gates uh, putting in a guilty plea. That's expected to put more pressure on former campaign manager Paul Manafort. There's a lot going on. Easy for the White House to be distracted. Um, Having said that, if indeed this movement is, as you say, and as Bannon says, what could that mean politically for the White House and the Republicans? Well, it could mean that that women are especially motivated to vote. If you look at, for instance, the off-year elections last November in Virginia, there was an absolute uh, outpouring of of female, not just voters, but political activists, candidates running for election for the first time. Uh, And there was a huge upset. I mean, the, the, the there was a swing of, of, of 15 seats or so in the state house from Republicans to Democrats. Every Republican who lost was a male Democrat. Eleven of the replacements, uh, or sorry, was a male Republican. Eleven of the replacements were Democratic women. Uh, so I think that's an early inkling of the kind of wave that could be headed uh, for Congress if things continue on the same path. Uh, you know, one of mm. the things that I know concerned Bannon and some Republicans is yeah. that in the time after Oprah Winfrey's speech, we've had this uh, ongoing crisis in the White House, the spousal abuse crisis, right. and uh, allowing the White House secretary to keep working even after these allegations were made public. Right. Uh, you know, that's not the sort of thing that's going to endear women to the Republican Party. And so Bannon's claim is they need to change tack. Got it. Josh, thank you so much. Josh Green, national correspondent at Bloomberg Businessweek, on the phone from the nation's capital. How much does it cost? I'll buy it. The 
the time is all we've lost. I've tried, and he can't eat. All right, everybody. Shares of the mid-cap firm Trade Desk rallying 20% today as it reported higher profits and higher sales than estimated. Let's hear more about the online advertising company's business. Back with us, Jeff Green, CEO at the Trade Desk, on the phone from Ventura, California. It's been a while. So, hey, Jeff, nice to have you back. Remind our listeners uh, what you do at the Trade Desk. Uh, you bet. First, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Delighted to be back um, at the trade desk. We basically help the biggest brands and the biggest agencies in the world figure out which ads online they should buy. So, in this world where you can apply data and make more informed decisions instead of just calling up the New York Times and saying, "Hey, I'll I'll, I'll buy the front page for the month or for the week or or, or whatever," you in, instead can choose every single ad opportunity for every single user. And that creates a dilemma for them, which is, which ones do we buy? And that's basically the question that we answer using technology and data. That's interesting. So every format, every possibility where you could advertise, basically you come up with metrics about who's who's your target audience with it, right? So you can steer your clients uh, in that direction. Exactly. So, um, you know, if BMW wants to spend a million dollars a month in advertising, which, of course, they spend much more than that, but if they wanted to in programmatic they, could, uh, uh, they, they basically need to look at the 10 million ads that are available every single second. And then they need to choose which 200 or, or, or so that they, they need to buy. And we'll mm-hmm. help them decide, should they run an audio ad on Spotify? Should they run a video ad on CBS? Uh, should they run a batter ad on Yahoo? And, and discern between all of those, which, where is the value? Where, are their, where is their audience? And where is the value? All right. So, Jeff, so you're getting to see, you know, what platforms are doing what for advertisers. What might surprise our audience about the different advertising platforms that are out there right now, whether it's social media, online, whether it's traditional broadcast, whether it's radio, whether it's billboards? What might uh, what kind of interesting trends are you seeing and what might surprise our listeners? So uh, I, I think the most interesting trend happening in advertising today is actually happening inside of Connected TV so uh, your listeners may not be surprised because, in fact, I imagine most of them are living this, which is uh, they signed up for Netflix four or five years ago. They probably signed up for Amazon Prime around the same time, maybe a little later. And, and maybe they, they got HBO on their Roku or maybe they got Hulu. But for the most part, uh, those are the most likely subscriptions that they've had. And what most consumers uh, uh, have uh, have found is that they're tapped out on the number of subscriptions that they can pay for, while in, in most cases, 70% of Americans are still paying for cable TV in addition to the 70% that are also paying for Netflix. So what that means is they don't have the money uh, to, to keep paying for subscriptions and get rid of ads. So 80% of the time when they're given an alternative, like in the case of Spotify in, in audio mm-hmm. or in the case a video in or in Hulu and video, consumers will say, I would rather see the ads and pay less or pay nothing uh, than uh, pay for yet another subscription. And what that has caused is that the connected TV inventory has gone up by a thousand percent in 2017. Yeah. Uh, and by inventory, I mean ad inventory, which which we see as this trend towards a, a, a connected TV revenue model where people see a lot uh, see ads the same way they do in traditional TV but they're seeing fewer of them and they're more relevant which creates a way better TV experience than you ever had on linear TV
That's really interesting. Talk to us too a little bit, um, and I'll be honest with you. I'd rather, um, I too would much rather. I'll I'll suffer through a couple of ads rather than you know pay you know more and more for you know all of these different services because it starts to add up. Um, talk to us a little bit about your business. Investors were definitely impressed. Uh, the stock is up uh, about twenty percent today. Uh, you guys are up about twenty seven percent so far in this year. Just got about fifty seconds. Tell us about the outlook and the growth in terms of the top and bottom lines. Uh, you bet. So uh, I'm, we reminded investors that uh, global advertising is a $700 billion industry, and it's marching towards a trillion dollars. Programmatic advertising is the fastest growing corner of advertising. Mm-hmm. A- and we're growing at double the pace of programmatic advertising. Uh, so basically what investors saw is even though the trade desk is scaling and even though uh, we're meaningfully profitable, um, the growth is not over by a long shot. And in fact, we're just getting started. And when they see these green shoots in audio and our partnerships with Pandora and, and with Spotify, and they see right. the green shoots in television, and then also our partnerships in China, they look at us as, as a global player that's going to keep getting bigger. Interesting stuff. And I'm, I'm curious to maybe next time around, we'll talk a little bit too, maybe about your relationships with things like Alexa and how that's that's playing into it. Jeff Green, great to check in with you. Chief Executive Officer at the Trade Desk. Shares of Trade Desk, they're up about 22% as we speak. Jeff joining us on the phone from Ventura. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. This time around, our guest says investors need to chill out. Doug Sioka joining us once again. Doug is CEO and partner at Kavar Capital Partners, approximately $600 million in assets under management. He joins us from Leewood, Kansas, where they make people so nice that this individual for a long time has not been correcting us that we've been saying his firm name wrong. <laughs> you are a really good person. Oh, um, gosh, that's sweet. And I'll tell you, the only person that corrects you is to me, and it's my mother, because that's her maiden name. <laughs> she says, when will they say Kavar? So today we, you said that. I hope she's listening. I hope Mom is listening, too. Um, nice to have you here. You say investors should chill out. Thank and you. can I just say, I kind of agree with you, because when we were seeing all this volatility, I kept saying to everybody, this isn't the financial crisis. Markets correct. And uh, uh, tell us a little bit about your thinking about investors needing to chill out right now. Well, or, or just generally relax, right, Carol? I mean, th- th- there is a lot of tension in the market right now, and, and there's a lot of position jockeying. It's, it's a tug of war of sorts, right? How much inflation is going to be good for stocks, and is it good for stocks? And if it is, which stocks? How much inflation is bad for bonds? before it becomes good for bonds and which bonds. And I think there's a lot of disconcerting activity in the markets. Um, largely, it's in a context of positive correlation, which is, which is rare. There's an interesting stat that we saw this week is that 90% of the time that the stock market has fallen half of 1% this year, the bond market has also fallen right, in price right. and backed up in yield. So the, the proverbial typical places to hide or the safe haven trade has not been intact. And I think that has 
elevated investor anxiety, for sure. No oh. question. All right. Yeah. And I mean, when you see that close correlation, it does make you scratch your head a little bit. Um, There are folks that say, though, you know, that there are a lot of investors who have gotten lazy, have gotten complacent about a low rate environment. And that when we do start to see rates creep up, maybe even more so than from where they are here, that that is going to be maybe problematic in their psyche. I mean, I don't know. Is it really going to change all that much? I I think that's the $64,000 question, it's just, it's new. Right? We have been lulled into this sense of complacency. It was like, it was this implicit agreement between the Federal Reserve Bank that they would underwrite risk, and we as investors would then agree to take risk. And if the risk underwriting is not going to perpetuate, what then is involved with us holding up our end of the bargain? Or is there a bargain to then be even upheld? So I, I've, I've used this silly analogy. It's not unlike Maybe the way you and I would discipline our children, right? As soon as they begin to misbehave, we want to know, what are you thinking? Like, how can you act like that? Now, right. when they behave, then that's just the presumptive course of behavior, and it just reinforces our awesomeness as parents. But there's a lot of temperamental nature to markets and investors, and that is on full display right now. Well, what, and I am curious, though, Doug, you know, what happened in terms of when we saw the volatility um, a couple of weeks ago, your clients, your investors, were, were you getting calls? You know, what was the kind of feedback you were getting about the volatility? We were, and, 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 I, and really that is a big part of, of hopefully we as investment advisors add value, right? When, when, when things begin to get disconcerting, that's likely the best time not to react, right? Hopefully throughout the course of rebalancing, monitoring, identification of, of values and, and expected returns within asset classes, it's a very progressive and active process. But there is a fixation as to the cause of any correction, right? And, and I think it's just a human psyche that needs some um, satisfying. And people never want to betray their instincts to do something when things get ugly, especially when things get ugly very quickly. Mm-hmm. So you see a lot of knee-jerk reactions. What we try to do is talk people out of executing those reactions because oftentimes they're going to be put in place in inopportune fashion. Okay. Having said that, right? All right. So everybody should relax, chill out a little bit. But having said that, I'm not saying that the period we're in is anything like the financial crisis, but go back to the crisis and some other points, whether it's the tech run-up too, where people were saying, oh, don't worry, this is going to work out just fine. You know, what would be that piece of data, that trend line that says to you, Doug, that there's something, you know, going on significantly negative in the economic environment and henceforth the financial market environment? Right. There are a couple of things I think are really important to be given the historic the history of their reliability and, and tony dwyer who was on bloomberg tv this morning did a great job in, in in identifying the benefit of having not even yield curve steepness but non-inversion in yield curves and how that is an environment that is going to promote growth and validate risk taking and, and by that i mean primarily in the form of owning stocks if business conditions are sound, underlying economic growth is intact, company profitability is not just growing, Carol, it is bounding forward, right? Right now, with, let's say, 95% of companies having reported for the fourth quarter, mm-hmm. we've seen almost a 15% lift in EPS and projected, and this can be revised many times, we may see 18% year-over-year next year. 
So with, with, the, with the non-inverted, reasonably steepening yield curve, strong underlying economic and profit growth, and easy access to capital, right? Yes, the Fed is turning the corner a bit. Yes, they're being less accommodative. No, Jay Powell is not Janet Yellen, but Jay Powell right. is not a hawk either. Yeah, exactly. Right. And we'll certainly hear more from him um, next week. Doug Sioka, nice to check in with you as always. Chief Executive Officer Partner at Kavar Capital Partners. What's your mom's first name? Georgine. Georgine. That one one's for you. All right, Doug, have a great weekend. Uh, Kavar has uh, about $600 million in assets under management. Doug joining us on the phone from Leewood, Kansas. I got a double dose because I'm there is so much to talk about when it comes to the medical community uh, on this Friday, um, and that includes what goes on in terms of medical malpractice. Dr. Ian Lusbader is back with us, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Medical Center here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Good to have you back with us. Thanks so much for having me. You walked in and you said, hey, can we talk a little bit about what happened in Parkland, Florida with the shooting uh, at that high school and the shooting of students? Because doctors have kind of weighed in on this. Tell me exactly what. Well, I think even though later shortly we'll talk about malpractice uh you know guns have been in the news firearms the american college of physicians uh recently came out with a position paper they've actually come out with several position papers saying that uh physicians and other groups mental health professionals and others need to really work together to reduce gun violence we should be talking to patients uh, uh, about gun safety don't be afraid to ask if they have firearms uh, are they familiar with safety uh, aspects of that, and to really sort of screen and assess our patients, uh, you know, competent and intelligent, and are they handling things well? Obviously, doctors are have a limited role, but they uh, the feeling is they should have some role and not be shy about asking about that. That's interesting, too, especially when you've heard certainly from the White House and the president about the importance of, you know, doing background checks and, and checking the mental health of an individual. How do, though, I mean, what's the response to the medical community kind of saying that we should be involved, we should be talking to our patients about this? I think it varies from area to area. You know, in New York City, we're having handguns is illegal unless you, you've got, you know, a series of permits. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not really a, a common part of the history. We ask a lot of questions. That's not usually one of them. But certainly there are areas in the country where we should be asking, uh, do you have uh, handguns? Do you have firearms? How many? Are you familiar with safety protocols? You know, are your guns locked for safety? You know, et cetera, et cetera, just to remind patients uh, that there's a community awareness uh, and also to screen uh, if, if something seems out of the ordinary. Is the fear, though, that, you know, Dr. Lospeter, that there is ultimately a database created of people with mental health conditions and that, you know what I mean, that you're kind yeah. of marked? Uh, we, we, certainly like doctors don't do that. I mean, uh, medical no, I records are confidential. Uh, obviously, we've had other shows where we talk about breaking yeah. into the medical database that hacking does occur. But I think it's really more to be proactive and try to uh, just raise awareness among patients uh, rather than to sort of track people. I, I don't think that's part of the, the goal, at least at this point. Let's talk about why you came in. Medical malpractice. Right. So uh, malpractice uh, is unfortunately always in the news. Uh, I, I actually had tracked some data before we were going to come on air, and I said doctors are spending thousands, in some cases hundreds of thousands of dollars on medical malpractice insurance. Medical malpractice costs billions of dollars a year. Right. It's really up to somewhere, the estimates, 50, 60 billion a year. Healthcare costs are rising. 
it's estimated somewhere between four and five percent of of healthcare costs may be related to malpractice, meaning defensive medicine, unnecessary testing, uh, malpractice insurance, uh, lawyers, and legal fees. So uh, it's a big business. It's a lot of money. The questions are, you know, what what can we do? Is it uh, what percent are frivolous? Uh, what can doctors do to really reduce that as well? You had um, a bunch of stats. Like I was looking through some of the research that you did. Give us give us a little bit of a snapshot of medical, medical malpractice uh, in terms of, um, I guess, the amount of cases or who gets sued. And just, you know, give us a little snapshot of it. Sure. So, uh, again, the estimate is somewhere about 3 to 4% of total health care spending. Health care spending is rising Estimated in 2026, perhaps to be as high as uh, $5.5 trillion. Right now, about $2.5 trillion. Um, studies show uh, really only about 25% uh, to 30% of cases really have no errors. So often physicians are being sued and there are no errors. On the other hand... A lot of times they are being sued and there are errors. Exactly. There, it's estimated... Um, that medical errors account for about the third leading cause of death in the United States. Perhaps as many as one in 10 uh, deaths may be attributable to medical errors. Uh, And so a lot more really. Yeah, it's a big number. Uh, It's surprising. The numbers I've seen uh, are anywhere from you know, 90,000 to perhaps even as much as 200,000 deaths related to that. To be fair, Medicine is not an exact science always, right. right? So there will be mistakes that are made. It's unfortunately intrinsic. Humans make mistakes. There are a lot of efforts, uh, checklists uh, before operations. Uh, Atul Gawande has written extensively the checklist manifesto. And so many mm-hmm. hospitals uh, like NYU are trying to uh, be uh, zero harm organizations and high reliability organizations where really medical errors are, are uh, trying to be reduced to the lowest possible. I mean, how much is careless errors? Is there a quant- Can you quantify that? I think that's hard to quantify. I think electronic medical records are one step, and that's almost universal at this point. Uh, dosing errors are flagged. Pharmacists are more involved. So uh, mm. one area that, that is uh, less uh, error-prone is handwritten notes and handwritten uh, prescriptions. So that's one thing, checklists that we do. But really, there's often... Um, can be delay in diagnosis, delay in treatment. Uh, And I think as a result of that, physicians do a lot of testing and try and be very thorough. And unfortunately, even some of the testing has potential risks to it. Not every test is risk-free, whether it's a CAT scan or a biopsy. Um, So it's very tough to get the right balance. But the medical community is very aware of trying to uh, reduce errors. Um, And unfortunately, the legal community uh, sort of paints, uh, you know, at times, uh, if, a, if a bad outcome occurs, uh, it's not always due to an error, but at times it is. It's a tough balance, right? And you need some kind of system for kind of checks and balances between the patient and, and the uh, practitioners. We got to run. Dr. Les Bader, thank you so much. Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called Movers and Shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Oh, 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 
Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for a look at your Movers and Shakers on this Friday afternoon. I'm Carol Masser, my partner in crime. Corey Johnson is off today. Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks columnist, though, in the house to talk about some of the names uh, moving in today's session. S&P 500, though, let's start with the uh, big picture. 470 names in the index higher today, 32 unchanged. Uh, forgive me, 32 lower, three unchanged. And the number one gainer in the S&P 500, a name that we were talking about a lot just 24 hours ago, was Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Number one gainer up about 10.5% in today's session. That works out to about $1.73 higher, closing at $18.14 a share. Hewlett Packard Enterprise, remember HP was split. You had the old company, HPQ, which was the printers and all that good stuff, and HPE, kind of the newer technologies at the company. HPE reported a surprise sales revival and projected profit. The top analyst estimates signs that the effort to reshape the company beginning to work as the new company's CEO, Antonio Neri, takes over at the company. Keep in mind, they do plan for $7 billion in buybacks and dividend increases, and that too helped uh, the information technology company uh, soar higher in today's session. Hewlett Packard Enterprise, quick check on what it's doing here in 2018, Dave. It is up 26%. Well, we should give H. HP Inc. They're due as well, the old HPQ, because they had numbers out late yesterday for their fiscal first quarter, as Hewlett-Packard Enterprise did, and uh, they were well-received. I mean, maybe you didn't see the kind of gain that you saw in HPE. Nonetheless, you're talking about first quarter revenue-beating estimates. Uh, They're managing to increase sales in an industry that's struggling a bit. I mean, personal computers, printers, not in demand the way they would have been a few years ago, nonetheless. But showing uh, some signs of life and their margins with that printing business, especially when it comes to supplies, that's pretty nice. Absolutely. And so you had HPQ as opposed to HPE, (laughs) HP Incorporated, up 3.5%. Hey, let me mention um, shares of Nordstrom, too. That's your number two gainer in the S&P 500 shares. Ticker, of course, JWN. Uh, Stock up uh, 6.5%, up $3.29 to 53.56 a share. Uh, Nordstrom shares are up about 13% this year, but a big bump today, jumping the most in almost three months on a report that its founding family is getting close to finishing a plan to take the department store chain private. Members of the family want to submit an offer as early as March after banks get approval to provide financing for the deal. This is all coming from Reuters, uh, citing people familiar with the matter. But we know the retail sector struggles. There's been different solutions for different retailers. So it looks like Nordstrom uh, at least some momentum that uh, the idea idea is today, Dave, that uh, it might ultimately go private. And so that sent it up in today's trade. Right. And we have Nordstrom's earnings to look forward to uh, next week. March 1st, yeah. Uh, Absolutely. And so uh, we'll get Macy's, uh, we'll get Kohl's. I mean, certainly these will all be worth looking at. Uh, One company whose earnings didn't go over so well, Exact Sciences. They're the maker of a uh, colon cancer test called Cologuard. I know I've been seeing advertisements for it on television lately. Uh, Their numbers, not what people were hoping for in terms of what uh, they're anticipating for actual number of tests. It's volume that's the issue 
uh, looking ahead to this year. Uh, some analysts pointing it out. Stock was cut to uh, hold from buy at benchmark after results came out late yesterday. And Exact Sciences ended up with a loss of 5.8% on the day. Got it. Let's get to the volatility index report. The VIX in today's session as stocks rallied, we saw the VIX move down almost 12%, closing today at uh, 1650. Quick check on what the VIX did for the week overall, down 15%. This is Bloomberg. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, as you know, Dave Wilson in studio with me, talking about movers and shakers, and he's also got his stock of the day. Dave, what do you got? And that would be Wingstop, Carol. It's mm -hmm. a restaurant chain. As you might expect, they specialize in chicken wings. The company was founded in 1994, started selling franchises three years later. There are now more than 1,000 locations in the U.S. and seven other countries. Wingstop has been publicly traded since June 2015. The ticker, again, as you might expect, is Wing. <laughs> the company went public at $19 a share, and the stock price has more than doubled since then. Last month, it rose to a record $49.69. Two weeks ago, Wingstop distributed a special dividend of $3.17 a share. The stock fell in response to pay out a certain amount of its mechanical. That happens when you, you get dividends as a matter of routine. Uh, today, though, it took another hit after a disappointing profit outlook for this year. Wingstop said it expects adjusted earnings of $0.75 cents a share. The forecast matched the lowest analyst estimate in a Bloomberg survey and was just $0.01 cent higher than last year's profit. Now, to put that in context, as far as the increase goes, profit jumped by $0.16 cents a share in 2017. So you're talking slowing earnings growth. Uh, Wingstock, among other things, citing some changes in accounting, uh, as well as the tax law uh, revisions from the end of last year. Put it all together, go, this stock fell as much as 10.7% in response to the forecast. Now, that would have been the biggest decline ever. Nonetheless, you know, that buy-the-dip behavior we've seen more broadly in the market played out with Wingstop shares to some extent today, at least, uh, as the uh, stock closed with a loss of just 5.1% on the day. More people have to try it. They're atomic wings. The website says, soft sweat and tears, the hottest we got for the boldest of the bold. You know, I've never been to a Wingstop, but they do have <laughs> a few in New Jersey, so I might have to take a uh, road trip and go check them out. I'm a wuss. I don't like any of that hot stuff. All right, Dave Wilson, thank you so much. Bloom Stocks columnist Dave Wilson with his stock of the day ticker is WING Wingstop. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.